Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm gonna show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Year, session number 415. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have an amazing guest who is returning to the pre-med years, Dr. Sunny Nakai. Dr. Sunny Nakai is the Senior Associate Dean of Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Partnership at California University of Science and Medicine. And I had Dr. Nakai on the podcast before. She was also part of the National Pre-Med Day that we had a while ago on actually May 28th, 2020, National Pre-Med Day 528 to the maximum score you can get on the MCAT. But I'm excited to have Dr. Nakai back to talk about her new book, Pre-Med Prep, Advice from a Medical School admissions dean. Now, all the links to the book and everything else will be in the show notes or at our website, premedyears.com slash 415, or just go to Amazon and search for premed prep or search for Dr. Nakai's name, S-U-N-N-Y-N-A-K-A-E. Dr. Nakai has tons of experience in the medical school admissions world and is sharing her wisdom with you in her book and with you on this podcast. Dr. Sunny Nakai, thank you again for joining me on the pre-med years. How are you today? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. I'm excited to chat with you about your journey in this pre-med and medical school world and a new book that you've written, Pre-Med Prep, Advice from a Medical School Admissions Dean. Congratulations on the the book and being a published author. It's a, a, an exciting journey, huh? Yeah, thank you. It was a, a labor of love for sure. I feel like I birthed something, you know, and finally completing the book and, and getting it out there. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I cannot draw those same analogies having written three books, but uh, I, I have this fourth one that I've been like sitting on for months and months and months and months. And it's just, it's stubbornly just obviously with COVID and no time to do anything. But uh, I'm excited to chat about your book. Before we dive into kind of the book and who's it for and, and what's it all about, 
about, I, I want to really talk about you and your journey in this whole medical education process. Now, unlike a lot of guests that I have on this podcast, you are not a physician. Um, I forget, though, about your journey. Were you ever pre-med in your journey? So I was never pre-med. I actually talked about this in my book. I started volunteering in middle school at a community hospital, just thinking I wanted to potentially go into medicine and realized I didn't really like sick people or bodily fluids or <laughs> working in a healthcare environment, like taking care of people was not going to be my thing. So um, I majored in human development, just kind of interested in human interactions and relationships in undergrad and pursued a master's in social work. And while I was doing that, I had a position at the University of Utah School of Medicine and Diversity and Community Outreach and just really got interested in working with pre-med students and diversity and equity and, and medicine and um, eventually decided to pursue a doctorate in higher ed. I got really tired of people not listening to me. So I said, fine, I will just go get a PhD because <laughs> I want to be heard. <laughs> and then um, I've just gone from there and continued to work with students um, for my early years at the University of Utah and through you know the institutions that I've served at since then. It's it's interesting, the this thought process. I didn't like the patients and the bodily fluids. A lot of students don't go through that process of verifying that information for themselves. And they go, well, I like science and I think I want to help people. And, and part of your book is this whole dump the checklist mentality. Why do you think you were able to figure that out? And a lot of students who are applying to medical schools have a 4.0 GPA, have a 518 MCAT score, but they've never actually checked out the, the, the other stuff that's involved with medicine. Yeah, I think for me, being at a medical school and working in an outreach capacity, I got to actually witness these journeys of students from having the idea of, hey, I want to do medicine and being a pre-med and coming through our programs to actually being in medical school, right? And then supporting them from the first year of medical school all the way through the match and then following them in their careers has given me this really long perspective about what's important at each of those phases. Um, so, you know, I've seen students deeply unhappy in, in medicine. Like, I don't know why I chose this. It was really more about my parents or mm -hmm. it was really more about the prestige of the career. And, and it's not a place that you want to just end up up, right? And it's a very expensive pivot, if you will, right? To say yeah. like, oh, I want to do this with my MD degree, MD degree instead. So, you know, I heard some great advice last week talking about career development saying, rather than asking people what they want to be or what they want to do, ask them what problems they want to solve, you know, and who, who they want to work with, who do they want to be part of their professional, you know, network uh, in the world. And I thought that was a different way of thinking about it. Like what problems helping people in loving science are yeah. obviously huge, you know, huge areas that we could tackle with many, many different career paths. Yeah. There's, there's a saying in the, in the business world that I really love that says, don't, don't fall in love with the solution, fall in love with the problem. Uh, I think yeah. a lot of people love the solution, AKA being a physician, but they, but they actually are really in love with, well, how do I impact my community? How do I decrease obesity? How do I, how do I fix all these other things? But their specific solution maybe isn't becoming a physician. It's, it's something else. Maybe it's becoming a policymaker or going into a nonprofit world or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And I talk about this in my book too. Just I've worked with students who've just fallen in love with the idea of themselves in medicine, right? Yeah. Like falling in love with this dream of being a doctor rather yeah. than 
actually being a doctor. And despite years and years of struggle and continual feedback that maybe this is not the best path, you know, just it shouldn't be ridiculously hard for 20 years, right? Like I do feel like when you, when your gifts and the world's deepest needs find a good connection, there is a sense of ease and peace there that just somehow facilitates forward. And that's not to say if there's a bump in the road, it's not meant to be, right? But I think continual feedback that this just isn't working, um, you're keeping yourself from pursuing something that really could make a difference, right? Solve the problems that you're hoping to solve. So I've had students go into physician assisting or public health or nutrition, um, you know, all sorts of amazing uh, health literacy, um, you know, community partnerships and community activism spaces that they do tons of good from those careers, um, the same as they would have done if they would have, you know, become physicians. Yeah. How do you recommend? So, so you have this whole dump the checklist mindset as a chapter in your book, but it seems like part of this process needs to go through a checklist to make sure that you want to do this, that you do love the solution. Yeah, so I talk about making sure that um, there's exploration and affirmation, which I think is an important like self-interrogation of who am I and why do I want to do this? You know, and really being able to answer those questions clearly and having that clear purpose. And I think that step really unlocks all of the rest of the things towards being a successful applicant and ultimately being happy in the career that you've chosen being a successful medical student, right? Because there's a purpose behind why you're doing this. So the book is really, let's stop focusing on what do we have to do to get in, right? Like everybody wants tips and tricks and edges and like this magic thing. Um, and there isn't, there isn't that. It's different for every person. So the, the frame really should be who do I need to be to be ready to be someone's doctor and to know that this is the path that I want to be on? Okay, but Sonny, this is this is pre-med Ryan talking. I, I know what you're saying and it sounds nice and pretty, but the truth is I just need the best stats possible because that's all the schools care about is the stats and I just need to be better than everyone else in terms of total hours, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I definitely, I definitely hear that. And I'm honest in this book about the role that the stats play. And I think, you know, I have a chapter called Understanding the Graduate and Professional School Context, where, you know, a very stereotypical kind of pre-med response of like, here's my stats and I didn't get in. I'm feeling so disgruntled and discouraged. And, um, and I sort of go through the larger context for what that looks like from the medical school's point of view. And the truth is that your GPA is not going to get you in. It can keep you out, right? Your stats can keep you out, but we don't look at the 518 and the 4.0 and go, okay, here's your ticket. We don't, we, we just let you in sight unseen, right? Because there's a huge, you know, swath of students that meet that criteria every year. It's growing probably up between 11 and 15% um, that don't get into any schools they apply to with those really incredibly high numbers, right? So that tells you nationwide, we care about much more than that because taking care of patients every day and the many roles that people have to fulfill as physicians are a lot more than test taking and going to class, right? It's more than just showing up and going through the motions. There's an element of investment that we look for in an application that, like I say a lot in the book, you just can't fake the authenticity part, right? It seems like sort of, you know, silly to say and obvious to say that, but it's very true. If you, students sit down to try and write their personal statement and they really can't write anything, that's a clue that you probably need to go back to some earlier phases of preparation and do that self-interrogation and exploration again. Yeah. When I talk to students who 
have been rejected. They they have the the 520, the 3.9 GPA, and they've been rejected. And I asked them, why do you want to be a physician? And they're like, well, <laughs> um, and the first question I almost always ask is tell me about your most meaningful clinical experience. And they usually blank, which tells mm-hmm. me they haven't explored. Like going back to very early, you had this fortuitous experience of like, I don't like this. This is not what I see myself doing. <laughs> they they haven't gone through that process. And so they can't. And, and this is a an essay that you wrote uh, on your on your website a long time ago. I don't know if it's still available about reflection, right? Really yes. being able to explore who you are and why you're doing it. Not just that you did it right. And, um, I, I do a lot of stuff with Dr. Scott right now, former director of admissions at UT Southwestern. And he says, it's not what you did. It's, it's not the, what it's the, so what, right? What is, mm-hmm. what does that mean to you in this grand scheme of things? And you can't compare that to another student. It's all about you. Why do you think students struggle with that so much? I think students have had a very curated and formulaic winning combination for being successful up to this point, particularly those that medicine tends to sort of attract first and foremost, so type A, very high achiever students, right? So I do this, I do this, I do this, I get this. And Mm. especially high achieving students have never experienced a disruption in that personal formula. And so when I talk about reflection and, you know, what do these things mean? Why did you do these things? And what do they mean to you? Like the meaning making part is what makes it significant. So I give an example in my book of, you know, you volunteered a homeless shelter for a thousand hours. But if you, the meaning making that you've created from that experience is homeless people are lazy and they smell, right? (laughs) Like that doesn't help me understand what you're going to bring to medicine that's positive, right? It's not the hours, like, like you're saying, it's the, so what? So what what did you learn about homelessness, about the structures that inform homelessness, about solutions, personal challenges? Who did you meet along the way that challenged what your preconceived notions were, what your biases were that you, that you brought with you? So, um, I think it's, it's hard for students to step out of the, the checklist mindset because there are so many requirements to meet and the, the, yes, you have to take biology and get good grades. That doesn't necessarily translate into, yes, you need X number of hours in this area, right? So don't approach your experiences like your coursework. Your experiences are for growth and development. Your mm-hmm. courses are a lot like a checklist because you know many schools have those prerequisites in order to be eligible to apply. Yeah. What about students who are reflecting on the wrong thing potentially, and they're not reflecting on who they are as a person and what that experience meant to them, and and they are looking from a perspective of, well. I'm applying to medical school. Therefore, the medical schools want to see how much I'm aware of what being a physician is like. And therefore, I'm going to translate everything into, well, this experience has prepared me to be a physician in this way. <laughs> so I call this the meaningless donut. Track, <laughs> right? So this is the, the essays that say, there are many reasons why I want to be a doctor. And then they explain all the things that they did to explore this. Yeah. And then they, at the end, they say, I wanted, to, I wanted to be a doctor, so I did all these things. And the conclusion is, I did all these things, so I want to be a doctor, right? And there's no why, and there's no what. Yeah. And, you know, t- telling physician readers or people who are evaluating your application about medicine and what you know about medicine is not enough, yeah. right? Like that, but they already know about medicine because they're in it. And this yeah. is the same, you know, challenge I have when I work with 
students who are applying to residency. You know, telling anesthesiologists what they do is not is not helpful. <laughs> they don't know what they do. You need yeah. to tell them who you are and why you want to do that, yeah. right? Like, what is this career path shaping up to be? So, I think students want to sort of, um, you know, present evidence that they know. We do want to know what you're getting into, but if you can tell us about a meaningful encounter with a patient, that tells us that you do without preaching to us about the nuts and bolts of the profession, right? Yeah. Like understanding the nuances and the insights. When I learn something new from reading an application, I love it because it surprises me and it grabs me and it it really gets my attention and, and brings to light like, who the student really is and how they're authentically invested and engaged in the world. And that's what stands out in a process um, more than numbers. Yeah. What do you call the donut again? What's the full name? I call it the meaningless donut. The meaningless donut. It's, it's, yeah, it's amazing that you call it a donut, right? A donut is circular, most donuts, right? Unless you're talking about an eclair or something. But as soon as you, like the way that you describe that, and maybe it's just because I'm a huge nerd. I, I immediately thought of, Excel spreadsheets and the circular reference error that will happen if you're trying to do a formula that is like using another formula that's using itself. It's like, I I can't do this because it's just going in a circle and it won't work. And it's like, it's exactly what you're describing as students, students doing this. The, The other thing that I see is that students will set up their essay and go, well, I know that to be a physician, you have to be compassionate. And I'm like, okay, I know what's coming next. You're going to show me a time where you were compassionate. And so basically you're saying to be a physician, you have to be compassion, compassionate. Look, I have compassion. Therefore I should be a physician. I'm like, I don't think it works that way. Right. I, I read an essay earlier this year about a student who was talking about you know, how they, again, trying to show how they've exhibited compassion. They dressed up in costumes and went and visited these kids at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I felt so good because I did this service or like, this feels good to me. Right. But like <laughs> lots of things feel good. Lots yeah. of things make us feel fulfilled. Lots of things are a great outlet for our skills. It's the, yeah. it's the meaning making. So the example that I give in my book is um, a student who volunteered at uh, the YWCA to teach self-defense, right? And was working with women was like, so, you know, the reflection was, it's really great to use my talents to help my community. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> like um, anyone who's not a, like, you know, in the reasonable realm of sociopathic would draw that same conclusion, right? Anyone yeah. could write this reflection for you, but what about it for you was interpersonal learning. So I challenged him to ask people why they were there. Like before class started, have people introduce themselves, ask them why they're taking the class. And then he came back and was like, I had no idea how unsafe the world was for women. Like I just totally, like I knew it, like, you know, kind of knowing it fact wise, but personalizing it with people who are coming. And then I started thinking about all of the implications of why are we te- trying to teach women to defend themselves? Why don't we make the world safer, right? Like then it's this whole opening up of learning. Of, there's so much more meaning in going in, and using my jujitsu talent to, to teach women, you know, that can be way more than it feels good to serve my community, right? Yeah. Because those are just so surface level reflections that they don't grab anybody. And I always say like, if I could guess or, or just write this for you, then it's not good. Enough. Yeah. What are some some tactics potentially that you give students and ha- have helped students think through this? How, how can someone either day of an experience or if they, they haven't done this yet and they're, they're getting ready to sit down and start writing their personal statement, how can they 
ask questions of themselves or maybe others to help them make the right meaning? Yeah, I talk about the growth zone a lot in my book, and it's like, I was going to call it the secret sauce, but my editor thought that was really cheesy, so I think we call it the, the secret ingredient or something something different than that, but I was like, no, it really, the secret sauce is really growth, yeah. right? It's it's really challenging yourself, and so journaling and reflecting or just even having conversations with a group of peers, um, it's important to pay attention to surprise. Um, because that usually tells us maybe where our biases were before we went in. Discomfort is a huge flag that gives us kind of insight to ourselves to reflect on our growth or, or something that's changing. Um, what brings you joy? What brings you sorrow? Things that are still bothering you, you know, things that are still kind of on your mind days later. What about that encounter bothered me? Or what? And, and the beauty of that is that it's a skill that you can bring with you into any path that you choose moving forward, right? Even if you end up working in an office or let's pretend like you become a physician and you have an encounter with a patient and it's bothering you two days later, going back and reflecting on that and saying, how do I need to grow as a doctor to be able to connect with this? Why do I think that I didn't make this connection, right? It's an iterative process of, of self-discovery um, if we can pay attention to those moments of joy and sorrow, discomfort, surprise. From the the medical school side of things, where do you think students fall flat the most the most common way? Like the the biggest mistake that they're making in terms of their application? Um, I think that they try to be everything to everybody. Mm. Um, and they also students have started to really just apply with this kind of shotgun approach. Um, which hurts consideration for all students because everybody just overwhelming tons of schools with applications thinking that the more I apply to, the better my odds are. Yeah. And the data doesn't really show that. The data shows that there's a diminishing margin of utility, you know, around, it used to be between 11 and 13 applications. I think it's around 15 applications now that kind of maximizes the chances that you'll find the right fit. Yeah. So um, applying to more schools doesn't increase your odds, right? So students often will, well, I don't really like research, but I went and did this research just so I could put it on my application and I want to apply to these schools that champion research as part of their mission. But if that's not what you like and you're not drawn to that, why are you trying to fit into that mold in that box, right? Like, and, and you're probably not going to be that great of an applicant at an institution that's championing research if you did it as a box checking kind of, you know, exercise mm -hmm. in order to meet eligibility for that school. So I think trying to sort of, you know, appeal to every single school. I mean, that's a big secret too, is that you're not going to be everything to all schools. If you're a great applicant, some schools are probably going to say no to you because you don't fit what they're looking for, right? Because there's a whole, you know, array of, of missions and, and um, emphases across the, the schools that exist out there. We've talked about this before, but I, I want to talk about it again, because you just brought it up. And that's really the, the fit aspect. I think students, and, and I don't know if it's an undergrad kind of mindset of the undergrads aren't necessarily looking at fit and they're looking at students and, and stats, but it, it seems like students are completely ignoring fit when applying to medical school and they open up the MSAR, they go, here's my GPA, here's my MCAT score, show me that list and I'm going to apply to all of those schools. And, and even just literally yesterday, someone in, in the pre-med hangout, which I know you're in and, and frequent, said their friend applied to 60 schools and i was like i was wow. i was like uh i was like disgusted almost like that's a lot of money number one that the double amc yeah. doesn't need and and that's a lot of probably distraction 
uh, of impact when writing those essays, that they were so spread thin that they probably didn't do a good job writing all of those essays. Yeah, I I think that the fit part is is challenging. And, you know, I guess for me, I see it on the med school side when students get there, you know, um, students who went to a community-based distributed model brand new medical school that wanted to go into plastic surgery and were angry they didn't match some plastics. I'm like, you chose a community-based primary care school and you're surprised that they didn't have infrastructure to match you into plastic. Like it, but students don't think about what do I want to do? Like, again, like, what problems do I want to solve? What communities do I want to be a part of for my career, right? You're not just getting an education. You are starting a professional journey. You're joining a family of sorts when you choose a school and you're that, that has kind of identity implications um, as well. So I've seen, I talk about this in my book too, a student who went to a school that had mandatory class from eight to five. Mm-hmm. And it was very small. There was like 40 some odd you know, students in the class and it was completely the wrong curriculum structure and fit for how the student learned. And they ended up struggling mightily despite being very prepared, um, just couldn't learn, weren't, weren't being allowed to learn the way that they learned best within the structural constraints of the way the curriculum was delivered. Um, so I think it's good to know yourself, both your professional goals, yourself as a learner, what interpersonal supports you might need. I mean, I've worked with students who left home for the first time in their late twenties to go to medical school. I don't recommend that. (laughs) If if you have not left home before, don't move 3000 miles away to go to medical school by yourself. I mean, or ask yourself, do, am I going to have these external support structures in place in a way that has helped me get to where I am, right? There's a certain success formula that students should be thinking about. How did I get to where I am? And what about that do I need to recreate in my medical school environment in order to be successful? So, How does a student determine fit? The, the websites out there all look the same. The, the vision statements, mission statements, they all look the same. How is a student, especially now with COVID, where you can't really go to a school anymore, although school tours like undergrad aren't really a thing for medical schools. How is that done? Yeah. I, so this is where I, I don't fault the students at all because I think, you know, schools, if I could criticize my colleagues for a minute, our mission statements are completely diffused. They, they, they're like, we're here for discovery. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it does not help students find fit. So ways that you can really understand what the school's offering are to look at what their graduates go into. So that's going to tell you kind of what what kinds of successful platforms. Wow, this school's 50% of the students are matching into primary care. This school, 50% are matching into, you know, surgical and subspecialty areas kind of thing. Um, are there dual degrees offered? What does the curriculum structure look like, right? So if you look into the, a lot of schools will have curriculum maps or overviews. Um, so perusing well beyond just the admissions page, um, well beyond the admissions leaflet and just looking at how the curriculum is delivered, Um, what types of of programs are offered, what graduates say, and connecting with current medical students um, who are at that school, saying, these are my goals, you know, do you think that that there's going to be outlets here for the things that I'm hoping to do and develop, you know, as a physician. But you really have to kind of go beyond to do your homework statements. Um, We're actually working on a holistic review team right now to, to look at, you know, can we even categorize mission statements in some way that's going to, you know, or should we be having some sort of fit worksheet, right, that schools have to fill out so we can be more transparent to signal mm-hmm. to applicants that we want them? Because I think part of it is getting lost of schools 
you know, by saying we want the best and the broadest and we're here for discovery. <laughs> well, if they're really holistic and they're interested in like say first gen students, right. Or immigrant health, that's getting all washed out. Right. So yeah. how can we add more specifics to our, to our mission um, indicators to help applicants find us? And that would reduce the work for, for admissions overall and also help students, you know, be more efficient in their application process. Yeah. One of the the things that has come up a bunch uh, doing a podcast series called Ask the Dean with with Dr. Scott Wright is uh, with his background in, in admissions um, and from the, he was the former executive director at TMDSAS. So like the whole, the whole application service to Texas schools is he he has this mindset or this, this thought, which I completely agree with, uh, especially with what happened at, um, at Utah with schools are very scared to put out statements that, that say, this is who we're looking for because then as soon as they want to accept someone who doesn't look like that, then it's like, well, what sort of legal ramifications are we opening ourselves up to because of this? Yeah. How, how do schools fix that? I mean, it, should there be a special carve out for admissions so that in the legal world so that schools can pick who they want and, and not fear ramifications? Well, I think there is a, quite a bit of deference in the courts to professional schools admitting, because again, you're being admitted to a profession and it's mm -hmm. a much tighter kind of, you know, implication, you know, when we admit people, I like, I like to tell students, we're directly responsible for you, right? You're yeah. one of our students. We're going to teach you, sit next to you, yeah. you know, potentially have to talk to you when you screw up or do something that you're not supposed to. Like mm -hmm. you're our, you're our problem. And not um, just for those four years, right? For life. Exactly. You yeah. wear our institution's badge wherever you go from that point forward. So it's very different than at the undergraduate level where there might be thousands of seats and the people who are doing admissions are never going to have to deal with you. So if yeah. they make a mistake, they're like, eh, you know, whatever. So we pay attention to, oh my gosh, a hundred times. This person is, you know, this is how they treated XYZ person on the phone because we're thinking about having to deal with this student and help them launch their career you know, over the long haul. Yeah. So um, I, I do think that there should be explicit messaging around what you consider to be plus factors or to talk about the kinds of patients that your institution is hoping to serve effectively and what sorts of, of backgrounds and experiences would, um, would, you know, make someone more prepared to, to serve that patient population. And you don't necessarily have to be of that identity to gain experience or expertise in serving underserved communities, right? It's really about the, the demonstrated experience. And if you do it right, and you go there and you roll your sleeves up and you get your hands dirty and you really interrogate yourself, you, you can find, um, I, I've worked with tons of amazing physicians, identities aside, who are just really great at what they do in serving specific populations that are underserved and they're not all necessarily like underrepresented say or first-gen students or have an immigrant background but they've invested in those communities um and have worked in them long enough and humbly enough to to listen and develop that skill set yeah part of the the book you have some advice for students and on working with their advisors i think one of the biggest struggles that that i see in the pre-med world is a uh, a, a negative slant towards advisors, advisors giving the wrong advice, advisors giving bad advice, advisors being uh, what what one advisor at UC Davis says, the, the career killer. Um, 
<laughs> advisor of like, like you can never get into medical school. Now you got to see an organic chemistry. What, what have you seen as an effective way for pre-med students to work with their advisors? I mean, I really think about it as, um, you know, I, I added a chapter for advisors and mentors at the very end, like right before we went to final proofs, because I thought I really need to write something about the kind of mentality that advisors and mentors should be using. And what I say is be a personal trainer and not a talent scout. As an admissions dean, I don't need you to pick people for me. I need you to help people develop along whatever spectrum they're at, right? A personal trainer takes all comers, elite athletes, all the way to people who are just starting and says, let me meet this person where they are and give them the tools to move forward in their health journey, right? So it's the same thing. Like, I wish more advisors would do that rather than having kind of this talent scout hat of like, we're going to wean the field for you because I don't want advisors <laughs> to do that. And I don't see that as their role. You can thank me later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so um, frustrating. I think, you know, you hear about like the dream killers and whatnot. So I think for students, I have this whole chapter about how to work with your advisor and the important things that your advisor may be able to do for you, like nuances around classes and scheduling and, you know, resources. And then I have a, a whole section about when to ignore your advisor, right? Because I, the, so many of the students I've worked with have been actively discouraged by advisors. And funny, the very first review of the book, I only had the negative section about like, don't work with your advisor. And this is when you should not listen to your advisor. And it was being reviewed for publication by advisors. And so, you know, I got some very, you know, cheeky feedback back that was like, you're telling students not to work with us. And I thought, okay, I have stories of working with advisors that have been amazing, right? They're just not as salient to me because most of the students that ended up gravitating to work with me were ones that were not successfully able, you know, to work with advisors and didn't get support and were turned away. So I really had to balance that section. And, and you know, it, you know, kudos to the peer review process because I think it's a more balanced and fair um, approach of, yes, you should absolutely work with your advisor. Um, and if you find that you're being turned away, you know, here's some strategies that you can do to continue your journey without an advisor. Yeah. Where can students find your book? So my book is available from Barnes and Noble and Amazon online. It's a Kindle and a Nook, I think, yep. and also through Rutgers University Press um, just directly as well. Nice. So just just go to Amazon. That's where everybody buys their books uh, or obviously Rutgers uh, Press. And we'll, we'll have all of the links as well in the, the show note. Again, pre-med prep advice from a medical school admissions dean. Dr. Sunny Nakai, uh, final words of wisdom for the student who is out there struggling on their journey um, and and just questioning whether or not this is what they should be doing. Yeah, I want to say I wrote this book um, just for you, just for that student. And I think, you know, with chapters for undocumented students and, you know, I really talk about non-traditional students and reapplicants and first gen, I wanted to put those stories of students front and center. You know, and the book is really based on students I've worked with over the years from a huge array of, of backgrounds that we don't typically see as front and center in the preparation, you know, materials that are, that are sent out. And so I wanted to support the journeys to really encourage um, diversity in medicine of, of all kinds and all backgrounds. I think we need that in order to really meet the needs of our country. So I, I wish I could spend an hour, you know, or a whole day with every pre-med student who needs encouragement, but this was my best, my next best thing was to sort of try to put everything in writing um, to encourage those journeys. 
All right, there you have it again, Dr. Sunny Nakai, sharing her wisdom with you here on the podcast and in the book. Again, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Rutgers University Press. Go find pre-med prep advice from a medical school admissions dean. Go check it out. And if you like it, go leave a review on Amazon. That's where everyone loves to see those reviews. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed the wisdom that Dr. Nakai shared. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.